Welcome to The Jest, the official podcast of Infinite Jest Theatre Company. I am your host, Colette Rutherford. Today's guest is Jim Kleinman, founder and artistic director of Playground and Playground LA, a playwright incubators program in San Francisco and Los Angeles. The original Playground was founded in 1994 in San Francisco, and the LA branch launched in 2012. Since its founding, Playground has developed and staged over 950 original 10-minute plays by 250 early career playwrights and has commissioned 85 full-length plays while creating a true community of theater artists bringing together playwrights, actors, and directors. Welcome, Jim. Thanks, Claire. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. I have been involved with Playground LA as a director the past two seasons now, and I love it. It's fun. It's challenging in a good way. A really lovely and talented group of artists come together each month to make it happen. Why don't you tell our listeners a bit about how Playground works, first of all? Absolutely. The core, one of the core programs of Playground is something called Monday Night Playground, which is a short play stage reading series. And it was inspired by a, a project that, that Paula Vogel had introduced when she started uh, running the playwriting program at Brown University, introducing a topic or a prompt, giving writers a short amount of time to write a response to write their short piece and then staging them quickly, but really getting them on their feet, not just a concert reading. And I really loved the energy. I loved what it meant for writers to be able to generate ideas quickly and, and then see them on their feet. And so that program is the core of any playground experience. And we operate six months a year for the reading series in both the Bay Area and Los Angeles. And the actors get the scripts usually just, you know, a few days or a week before, and they rehearse for just 90 minutes. It's really fast paced. And then we, we do a very brief tech because we are trying to give it a little bit of support. So we add a little bit of sound. Um, we've been on Zoom now for over a year. And so we've been adding visual backgrounds. virtual. Um, but otherwise, when we're in the theater, we add a little costuming, a little bit of props, and we use whatever set we're, we're on, whatever show is in the theater at that moment. And so we just try to adjust and adapt. But it's really quick theater. It's about making decisions. And it's really collaborative because everyone has to bring their A game. It's, it's a director being the best director, but really letting the actors bring all of themselves to it. And the playwrights get to really learn about what works and what doesn't very quickly. And there's even enough time to make adjustments so that they actually can tweak the script and respond to what's really happening in rehearsal in real time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is very fast and very furious, which is why it's challenging in a good way, though. It, it exercises muscles, I think, for all the artists involved that are um, nice to work those muscles. You have worked as a managing director with the Marin Theatre Company, Berkeley Symphony, Smuin Ballet, and others. What inspired you to begin working with playwrights and ultimately to founding Playground? I, I've always loved theatre, and I started an improv theatre company when I was at Brown, the first improv theatre at Brown, which is when I met Paula Vogel. And, uh, and so I loved being both a producer 
and an artist and, and finding that balance. Um, and then eventually I, I did find my way to the Yale School of Drama in the theater management program. And at the time when I was getting my training, I think the, the field was still pretty bifurcated. There were managers and there were artist leaders, and they weren't often considered the same. But occasionally you would come across someone who really was a combined persona. That I think actually more, more people are combined than not, but the field really liked to sort of create these managers and these artistic leaders. And, and so I was introduced to some of the people who really sort of shed those those uh, those titles in those boxes and try to combine it. People like David M's at South Coast Rep. And so I was really aspiring to be an artistic managing leader, you know, pretty early on. And when I got to San Francisco, I saw an opportunity to start up a new theater. I love new work. I love working with different artists. And I connected with Bridget Mullins, who is a playwriting teacher, was also a Yale uh, grad, and, and she was teaching playwriting at San Francisco State. So she had a group of, of writers, and we had this idea that we had already uh, helped develop, you know, that I'd been very interested in since Paul uh, Brown. And it was like, why not, instead of just creating another theater company, create this incubator? And so we started that in 1994 at San Francisco State, and just initially just offering the graduate students a chance to write plays and then bringing in professional directors and actors to help put those plays up on their feet. And it took off pretty quickly. Well, and I was, I'm always intrigued by theater artists' journeys. They're as varied and colorful as we are. And you have your bachelor's degree in Russian studies, which for a true theater aficionado, I mean, if you know Chekhov and Stanislavski, it kind of makes sense that then you would transition into theater. Um, yes, absolutely. <laughs> but why Why ultimately did you then choose theater management? If I mean, you do have a, an interest in the artistic side of things. I know you you direct, I think, every month for Playground LA and, and I, I do. had this other I do, interest in playwriting and all of that. So I have, and, and I've, I've ended up dramaturging a number of plays and, and I actually ended up co-writing one play that was a really interesting process a couple of years ago, a very collaborative writing process. Uh, but, you know, I think that it was, it was a matter of a little bit of looking at my own background. And when I realized that I, I wanted to, to continue in theater, I had started this improv theater company. So I had some management experience. I was sort of the original founder and manager. And then when I left, uh, when I got out of college, I ended up working for a year at the New York Philharmonic and was in the administrative side. And that was my first real experience working for a nonprofit arts organization and just being on the administrative side, just trying to help them. You know, I did ultimately try to go to grad school for Slavic languages and literature. <laughs> I was going to, I was scheduled to become sort of the next great Russian theater professor. They love that I love theater and they love Russian. They were hoping that I would combine that and I was going to be trained in that. And, <laughs> and it, it ultimately didn't work. I was, at, I was at Madison, Wisconsin for a year, but I got distracted by a lot of other things. And I was really thinking about that theater was my love more than mm. it was this Slavic languages and the Russian, the Russian literature. And I started looking around and it seemed like a more direct path. I really had not taken up directing at that point. I had my improv background. I had a love of theater, but not as, as an artistic collaborator. It certainly, I felt, felt that I had already somehow 
found a way and found a background to make a case that at the Yale School of Drama, where are the all these different programs, there's stage management, there's acting, directing, design. The actors and directors are probably among the most sort of recognized and famous. You get people like Meryl Streep and Sigourney Weaver. The writers certainly also well known. No one really knows who the theater managers are, but there's this great program <laughs> where they're training they're training the next generation of theater leaders. Yeah. And I just thought, I've already been doing some of this work. I think I can make a compelling case. And I had a mentor at the New York Philharmonic who wrote an incredibly wonderful, glowing review, uh, a reference rather for me. And I got in. I, 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 when I looked at my class, I was really surprised because the rest of my class, there was about eight of us in that class. And the majority of them had been interning for major regional theaters in the year or two before they got to Yale. They were all doing the work, but pretty much unpaid. Yeah. And and I felt a little bit like a pretender because <laughs> I had not I had actually not been in the theater really and immersed in the theater. You know, that was it was an incredible training for me to just spend time and begin to gain the confidence, but also to realize that I had been doing this work. It was just you know, New York Philharmonic, obviously another arts nonprofit and a huge one, that that experience really did translate, like learning how to do marketing or fundraising at the New York Philharmonic would serve me really well when I got to a theater. But it took me that time at Yale, I think, to to feel comfortable and then also to extend into the artistic. My real breakout opportunity was that every summer there is something called the Summer Cabaret, the Yale Summer Cabaret. It's run completely by the students from the Yale School of Drama. And it's usually headed up by the uh, some directing students. The artistic leadership would be the directing students. And then they would hire a manager, managing director from the management program. The year that I applied to run the theater, I applied to be the sole artistic director and I said, I can run this myself. I know the numbers, but I can be the artistic leader. And I actually got selected. And as a result, I got to run a summer theater working with some of the students that I'd known for a couple of years, but had not really been able to be an artistic collaborator. And so I got to direct. I got to encourage other directors. I got to create some new writing. I fostered new writing. I got to connect with alumni, people who had already left the school and brought back in. That was actually almost a mandate. They said, you're, you're a management student, so we're going to require that you hire a playwright and a director that are historic, you know, part of the historical Yale School of Drama. We want to make sure that you don't go off the rails. And, <laughs> and that was actually fine. I mean, I got to meet Chris Grabowski, who was the associate artistic director at the New York Theater Workshop for many years, and we had a really wonderful collaboration. And it made me, I think, feel a lot more connected to the Yale School of Drama con- the community than I probably would have otherwise felt. So that was part of my background, and I definitely brought that to the Bay Area when I moved out in in 92, but it took me a few years just to feel comfortable that maybe I was not just going to manage someone else's artistic vision, but that I might want to partner and really help build something out myself. So. And I think it's pretty obvious from this conversation so far, but also to anyone familiar with you and your work or with playground in San Francisco or in LA, uh, that you have a love and a passion for the work. Do you have a favorite theater experience or artistic role that you've had outside of your work with playground? I mean, I, it's interesting. I, I have 
certainly distinct memories of of like things that just really sort of shaped me. I remember seeing Mickey Rooney in Sugar Babies on Broadway. It wasn't a great show, but I just remember like to be able to have seen Mickey Rooney when Mickey Rooney was alive and still in in his prime, and and that just definitely shaped me. I I didn't really become a fan of musicals until much later, and I think part of it was that the musical form really evolved in in the 80s and 90s. And as you started to get shows like Rent and Wicked and even Les Mis, really, I mean, I found those shows to be so powerful that my feeling toward musicals and the storytelling that they could offer really changed. In some ways, one of my my most significant theater experiences before Playground or outside of Playground was actually a real sort of challenge, almost failure for me in which I knew that I needed to go to school for this. I had been in Madison, Wisconsin. I was on a scholarship for Slavic literature languages. I was gonna be in, a, I was in a PhD program. You don't get just a master's, that's only a sort of step on the way. And I got there and, and they weren't offering Russian language the, the semester I got there. So they said, it's time for you to move on to your second Slavic language. We're gonna start you on Polish today. And if you know anything about Slavic languages, they're very similar, just enough to really screw you up. Yeah. And so I had I had I had mastered Russian and they were already starting me on Polish and I was completely like struggling and lost. And then I went down to the lake and I saw the sailing and the sailboats and I'm a, I'm a big sailor and I actually had been a sailing coach for many years. And so I actually became the women's sailing team coach that year and I, I started shifting my energies and I just like I don't think I'm going to stay in this Slavic literature program. I just it's not where I'm going to be. But I felt really bad about having gotten the scholarship. So I decided that what I would do as I was transitioning out of the school, I would take my scholarship and I would produce a play that hopefully would honor the intentions that they had for me being the next great Russian theater specialist. So I picked a play by Nikolai Erdman, The Suicide. And I rented a storefront with my scholarship money. And I met when I walked over to the theater department, I introduced myself to the undergraduates and the professors. And I took my money and I hired everyone and I built a set in the storefront and I directed this play. It was my first major directing experience outside of the improv company. And it was a complete train wreck, complete train wreck. <laughs> I didn't understand how to market. I didn't understand how to be a director. I didn't know how to build a set. There was one moment where one of the flats almost fell down and then everyone got really scared and upset because they didn't feel it was safe. It was such an incredible lesson in how to do everything wrong. <laughs> and I had, I had just, at that point I had applied right in the middle of that, I had applied and I just had found out right then that I got into the Yale School of Drama. And I was so grateful that I was going to get to spend three years learning how to do this right and learning how to collaborate with people and learning how to work with people who knew their parts of the job better. And so I would only have to do a little part. That was such a sh an ex incredible experience for me, how it shaped my, my mindset that how to be humble and how to sort of fail and, 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 and move on. It's not always about success leads to more success, but like having the failure really taught me that you can still achieve things even when you fail. And it's just about sort of knowing how to sort of acknowledge that. I don't think I acknowledge that failure as well as I wish I had. I'm sure if I went back and talked to the people involved in that project, they're like, oh my God, that was a nightmare. But, <laughs> but you learned but I, from I, it. I, 
I totally learned from it. Yeah. And it really, it still sticks with me. It was such an incredible experience and memory. So I think that, you know, that, that certainly was a big one outside of Playground. And then obviously, you know, Playground has been my life now for 27 years. Playground really has been sort of the defining experience for me in terms of my theater, because even though we largely are working with short content and, and only a small number of full-length works over the years, those works have just been so powerful. And watching writers bloom, watching writers come into their own, watching writers begin to build a community, you know, that that's so rewarding. And, and it's something that just draws me back over and over again to keep can keep investing in playground and keep investing in the community because I've seen how writers like Aaron Loeb or Lauren Yee have have been able to grow and move on to the next stage because of their playground experience. So then what are you most proud of accomplishing with Playground? Oh my goodness. Well Playground LA certainly has been an absolute highlight for me. We just finished season nine and we had our season ending Best of Playground LA Gala, which is a sort of culminating performance of the best six short works from the year. And we've also built a, com a company now where we finally have all these directors and actors who've been regularly working with us, who are part of a company of artists in addition to the writers, many of whom have been now with us for five or six years, some longer, some only for a year or two, but at the end of this year's Best of Playground LA Gala, stuck online, because we're still in the Zoom world, we all went on screen and we spent the next 30 minutes, instead of just sort of like going home and turning off, we stayed around after the show and just stayed on screen using the chat function and just talking and seeing each other's faces. And it was so beautiful and so powerful. This thing didn't exist nine years ago. And suddenly there's a community and it's actually now, I think we have about 50 or 60 artists that are regularly part of it over the course of the year. And the majority of those artists return year to year. We just added, I think, six or so new company members, including you, Colette. And it just, it was, I mean, my heart was just exploding, just seeing all this incredible talent. And yeah. just knowing these are people who are fueling the film industry and television. These are people who are writing and producing and acting. We have people who are regulars on daytime soaps, but they come to Playground LA to have fun and to meet community and to find the rewards of the live theater experience, even when it's stuck being online. It's a small little company. Playground LA right now is still very, very small. Annual budget of under $10,000 a year. <laughs> but but it it just that was so incredible for me to see everyone and to see what we've created and to know that we're we're now heading into season 10 i would say the other the other major reward and most rewarding accomplishment has been that playground in the bay area has been a nomadic theater for its entire history and we had a sort of quirky almost you know an incredibly quirky incident that happened to us back in in 2015 playground was getting ready to mark its 20th festival and we were planning a big festival in 2016 so this year is actually our 25th festival but in 2015 we were planning for that big festival just about nine months later we had reserved the theater that we've been using for a number of years well in advance 
And suddenly I got a call in September. I was actually asking, could we use the theater for our board retreat? And the theater owner, who's a nonprofit as well, said, oh, I need to talk to you. And I was like, what's going on? He says, I think I double booked the dates. And he'd actually given away the weeks that Playground had been using the theater every single year. We'd had the same four-week block for years. And he'd given it away to another theater company that was also in residence there. And I just thought, how can this happen? How can this happen as we're getting ready for our 25th festival? This is the most, our 20th festival is the most significant event for us. And I just thought, you can't run a theater this way. You can't, you can't have someone whose business, you know, it's not their business to manage it the way it's not working. This can't happen. And it's not just about that we should have full control. It's like no theater should go through what we're going through. And I just thought that's just not the way to run things. So we did end up getting permission to have our board retreat at the theater space. We scrambled to find another space for our festival. We ended up staying in that venue, but we pushed our festival into June with a theater that had no air conditioning. So it got really hot. It was incredibly uncomfortable. And we, in the board retreat that we had like a week after that whole thing happened, we quickly discussed what to do. And we decided, okay, we're going to do the festival in June and we'll get through it. But we also decided that we will never have this happen again. So we negotiated with the owner. And then two weeks, we had signed a lease agreement to take over the theater for 10 years. And we then started a fundraising campaign. And within 12 months, we had raised $300,000. Wow. And, and, had, and we basically took over the space, renovated it, and kept everyone who was using the theater in there. We didn't just like bump everyone out, but we were able to start giving them contracts a year and a half, two years out so that they could get security and begin to go to the NEA and ask funding knowing that this was the plan. So here it is now. We started, we opened the new theater called Potrero Stage, used to call Thick House. We opened the theater in 2017. And I will say that having that space for playground has been transformative and also being able to house all of these other small theater companies has been really, really a rich experience. And on top of that, we launched a program just two years ago called the Innovator Incubator, where we decided to support the launch of new theater companies, particularly new diverse theater companies representing um, many aspects of our, our, our really diverse community. And so in just the last three years, we've now launched 13 new theater companies wow. led by artists who are emerging to establish, but this is their often their first theater company that they're running on their own. And we're providing administrative support. And these are, we have several Latinx theater companies. We have a Filipinx company. We have a, a Native American indigenous company. We have several queer theater companies, a trans theater company. And all of this has become possible because we had a space in which we could welcome them in and that we could also begin to plan our programming further out. So it's really been like, I look back and I think if you could point to one thing that changed Playground's trajectory, I would say Playground LA for sure, because it told us that we could connect to other parts of the country, other parts of the Bay Area and of the, of the, of the region. And also Petrero Stage, because it, it showed us that even as a small company, we could create a home and a home for artists who often didn't have their own home and that we weren't going to wait for a big theater 
to welcome us in and maybe give us just a few weeks a year. We were going to make a big place for everyone to come. And it's, 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 it's created this really rich community that I think it, it, we're not done. We're just kind of getting started in terms of the kind of transformation, um, particularly, you know, when you look at what's also happening with the, the social justice movements that have really risen to the fore, I think the work that we're doing at Potrero Stage um, and, and the, the equity work that is so inherent in the work of Playground and Playground LA, it feels like we've been doing this work for so long, but it's finally sort of being recognized and, and being celebrated as the only way that theater should really be working. So. That's really incredible. Now is the time too. So to come into your to come into your own in this time is fantastic. But also, I mean, for anybody who produces theater, if you don't know and you start out small and your whole deal is reliant on renting spaces because you don't have a home of your own. And oftentimes those spaces are poorly managed for a variety of reasons. And it's not always cost effective to produce in that manner. And that does really restrict and limit who can create art in addressing this diversity issue that theater has and has had for its entirety. That's a really great way to go about problem solving there. And it sounds really awesome. I'll have to check that out when I go up to San Francisco next time. Absolutely. (laughs) You also have a young playwrights program as part of Playground. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. This is going to be the 13th year of the young playwrights project. So it, it's been around for a while and it's, it's, it's still, it still feels like in some ways it's a fledgling program. I think because we still haven't been able to invest the, 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 time and resources. And the academic world, particularly the high school academic world, is a really, in in many ways, has so many barriers. It's really difficult for teachers to try to modify their curriculum or to bring in people from outside. There's so much testing required. There's so much rigidity, I think, to the structure that, that high school teachers work under. And in some ways also, they're so cut off from one another. You could have two teachers who are trying to figure out how to foster creativity among their students, particularly students who, you know, haven't really begun to realize their potential. And they might sort of think like school's not for them or writing is not for them or theater's not for them, but they haven't been able to be fostered in a way where they can see how much power they have and how incredible it is to write your own story and to share it. And they don't get to talk to each other. And so that's been a real challenge for the way we, you know, the, the kind of program we're doing. But what we basically did is we we decided to take the idea of the Monday night series, this the idea of, of original developed plays and getting them their first professional stage reading. And we wanted to offer that to students. We thought, okay, first we'll go into the schools and we'll offer master classes, we'll offer playwriting classes. We realized also that some schools are probably not well prepared or positioned to offer classes in school. So we offered some offsite classes as well to try to sort of handle the needs of all students. And then we have a contest and we invite them, we give them a prompt just like we give to our professional writers. We give them more time because we know that our writers have been trained into a sort of a formula. You get four and a half days to write your script so their 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 muscles are are, are ready to go. A young playwright maybe doesn't have that experience, so we gave them often, you know, two months to put their script together. We take the best of these scripts, we take four of them, 
and we now put them together in a single evening. It used to be that we would use the short plays as almost like a curtain raiser before the best of playground performances. But now we have a chance where because of Zoom, we brought them all together on a single evening and that's gonna be our ongoing structure. And it's so much better that way actually. We get to celebrate the writers, they get to see each other, they get to see each other's work and they get to celebrate the larger high school you know, writing community. And so we have four writers every year that we celebrate and we're now on our 13th year. We've just selected the winners, has not even been announced yet to the writers, but we'll hire directors and professional actors to bring these works together. And they'll go through the exact same process that we do for a Monday Night Playground. They'll rehearse for 90 minutes, get a little bit of tech time, and then we'll get to put them out there live this year via Zoom, hopefully next year back in the physical theater. That program has been going on for a while. I think what I'd love to see eventually is to have more of our playwrights be able to teach in schools and have more visiting artists work with more schools and really start to extend beyond, you know, to, we've, we've got the nine counties Bay Area. We Our goal has always been to make sure that we have representation from all nine counties in the contest. And we're really also looking at some of the schools that don't even have full theater program. And those are actually the ones I really want to work with is schools where there's an English teacher who has a love of theater and says, let's talk about you each writing your own short play and then Playground could come in and help build their skills so they feel comfortable doing that kind of work. That would be really great. It's so tough because the arts are always the first thing to get cut in schools and people, you know, you have to write all these other things for English class in high school, but nobody ever thinks about like, hey, well, you know, we're, we're reading some Shakespeare. What have we thought about writing a play? Um, Absolutely. And, and it, you know, it's so funny that like in so many aspects of our industry, it is about the people, you know, it's about making personal connections. Yeah. One person's success is often not just about the fact that you have talent. We have a lot of people with talent, but it's about who, you know, and how you can leverage those relationships. Well, I met someone from a science and technical uh, high school in the Bay Area. It's a, a STEM school. And but she's an English teacher and she loves theater. And so she decided at one point several years ago that she was going to require every one of her students each year to write a play for the contest as a, as a requirement of the year's English class. And so as a result, I'm getting these plays from these STEM students who have often never written a play before. And some of them are just absolutely brilliant. I really feel very fortunate that we have that relationship and I want to build more of those. I mean, finding again, those teachers who might be in the most unlikely of places, school without a theater program, a school that has a different kind of focus academically, but where there is some kid who is otherwise going to fall through the cracks yeah. and, and theater might actually open the door to a world of possibilities. Maybe they don't stay with theater professionally, but maybe theater is going to help them understand when they become a doctor or when they become um, a manager or when they become a lawyer about how to think about creativity and collaboration differently in the ways that I think that we've learned as theater artists. So, 
Oh, well, and as theater artists, we've all seen those memes about like what theater has taught me for real life skills and for job skills. Yeah. And it translates. And it, it's, it really does. It's important. So let's talk about what is next for Playground, because just as Broadway is reopening, you guys are launching a new Playground branch in New York. When we is that? Are... Yeah, so we are currently accepting applications for the first New York writers pool. We're going to select 36 early career writers. We let writers self-determine what that means for them because we've we've had writers who say, you know, I feel like I've been emerging for 20 years and <laughs> and I still need support and opportunity. So we really let writers self-determine. But we're accepting applications right now, and, and they just apply by submitting a short play that's been produced or unproduced. And we're going to accept those through the end of June. And then this summer, we're going to select the first 36 writers of the New York pool. And our goal right now is to open the Playground New York program with a Monday night playground on the fourth Monday of the month, starting in October. So we've got second Mondays, which are currently Playground LA third Mondays, which are Bay Area, and fourth Mondays will now be dedicated to Playground New York. And given the skills that we've all developed this last year, we're going to start completely online. It doesn't mean that we won't someday transition into a physical theater, but this last year, I have to tell you, has been an incredible lesson in figuring out who has access to theater and who can make theater and who can watch theater and what we need to do as an industry to remove the barriers. One of the decisions that Playground has come to is that even when we return to the physical theater, we're going to have to continue to find ways to broadcast and live stream our content because it's been so empowering for the community. We've met audiences all over the world who've been able to watch our work. We've actually been able to collaborate with artists who had to move back into their parents' house outside of the region in which we normally produce. And they're continuing to be able to partner with us as part of the playground community, even when they're cut off from the, the job that they previously had. For Playground New York, our goal right now is to, at least for the first year, to use the Zoom platform and offer a live performed online stage reading series on the fourth Monday, October through March. And then we'll have a culminating program in April or May for the end of season. And we'll see how that goes. But our goal definitely is that, you know, we will consider eventually having an in-theater activity with the guarantee that we'll also continue to stream it as well. And then hopefully we'll also be able to return in person at some point to our theater in Los Angeles. And the same true, the theater that we operate in the Bay Area, we hope to be able to return in person, but we are definitely going to incorporate the, um, the live streaming and broadcast capabilities that we've learned in the last year as part of anything we do going forward. Yeah, it just makes it so much more accessible for artists and, and audience members alike. I think, I think everyone should most strongly consider that going forward. I know a lot of people have committed to it, but I, I really think that everyone should. And that's my personal opinion about that. I How totally agree. <laughs> We're theater people. We want to be very welcoming and inclusive, and we definitely want to do better in terms of accessibility. So how can people find out more about Playground New York or Playground in the Bay Area or here in Los Angeles? Where should they go? Absolutely. 
So, and I need to do a better job of cross-linking the three company sites. There now are the three sites, and there's also a fourth site for our, our venue, Petrero Stage. But basically, you can find any of the playgrounds by just going to playground and then a hyphen, and then the initials of the region. So in this case, playground-ny.org uh, is the Playground New York, uh, playground-sf for the San Francisco Bay Area, and playground-la.org for Los Angeles. And they all have Facebook pages as well as Twitter and Instagram. And you can usually just do a search for the name Playground LA or Playground New York or uh, Playground SF. We don't actually call Playground SF, the, the organization in the Bay Area, we don't call it Playground SF. It's just that our web domain is SF. But, but that may change as we sort of think about this idea of the umbrella. And, and there are already discussions about adding other cities in, in the next several years. And so if anyone uh, listening wants to see how Playground can come to their city, they should also just email us, info at playground-sf.org. Uh, but we are very interested in that. And what's so great about Playground, which I don't think I have mentioned yet, is in each region where we operate, we always focus on local artists, you know, that that's where our energy is. So we always have the writer's pool is exclusively local writers in that community. And the directors and actors that make up the company are artists who either are originally from or continue to work actively and live in that community. So it's really about building local communities and also making sure that when you transfer from one region to another, there's hopefully a playground in your community where you can continue to have your relationships and association. So we've had wonderful cross uh, pollination going on between the Playground LA and the Playground Bay Area communities with artists, uh, directors, writers, and actors moving back and forth. And they know that, that the skills that they learn in one will transfer to the other and that the company is very welcoming wherever they land. And so our hope is that will continue as we move into more expansion. Yes. And I can personally attest that you build connections and a community and you work with these people outside of Playground and you start working with them more because I have and I do. <laughs> Yay. And thank you, Jim, very much for joining us today. It has been a pleasure and best of luck launching Playground New York. Thank you, Clint. This has been wonderful. Always a pleasure to speak with you and get a chance to talk a little bit more about what we're doing at Playground. Thank you again to Jim for joining us today. To find out more about our ongoing monthly classic comedy reading series, which is continuing in May with George Bernard Shaw Arms and the Man streaming only on Facebook Live on Saturday, May 22nd, as well as our other offerings, visit us at www.infinitejesttheater with an R E company.org. You can also find us on social at ingesttheater, again with an R E. And for all the latest on this podcast, follow the hashtag, the Jest Podcast. New episodes drop the second Friday each month. <laughs> <laughs>